Hello and welcome to season five of Altamar. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, ready to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do every two weeks. And Mooney, I can't believe you've stuck it out with me for five seasons. It's I know, um, right? It's like uh, Casa de Papel, which you just said. It's really like on and on. And I'm really looking forward to this season because unfortunately the world keeps giving us things to talk about. And last December... Chile elected a 35-year-old Gabriel Boric as president. So today we're going to focus on what the results of Chile's elections portend for Chile, but also for the rest of Latin America. It's going to be a big, difficult political year in Latin America filled with elections, new leaders, protests, as the region tries to reverse the relentless backsliding of equality and social progress. And we're going to be joined later by our friend Juan Gabriel Valdez, former Chilean foreign minister and former ambassador to Washington, an academic and a real authority on his country and on the region at large. And today, Peter, we will, of course, discuss the electoral calendar, including new unlikely leaders in Honduras and Chile, as you mentioned, and also the big elections upcoming in Colombia, my country, in Brazil, and Costa Rica. But before getting into the specifics of one country or another, the question that you and I, Peter, have asked ourselves as we're thinking through this episode is actually whether there is a common denominator running through many of these elections. It's so simplistic to kind of bulk Latin America in one, but there are things that stand out. And one of them is the continent-wide fraying of the social safety net that has canceled out so many of the important strides of the past 20 years. Indeed, over the past two decades, many millions of Latin Americans had been pulled out of poverty and had started to enjoy improved access to basic goods like to healthcare, to education, enhanced housing, greater purchasing power. And there was a sense that lives were getting better in the region. But before the pandemic, even these numbers had begun to slip due in equal parts to a decline in the price of commodities and also just kind of widespread poor governance, corruption, political mismanagement from leaders left and right. If you think about it, there's some obvious examples, but there's a bunch of examples that aren't so obvious. I mean, the obvious ones, Mooney, are Venezuela's Maduro as the leader of this kleptocratic government that's draining his country of its riches and has resorted to this incredible repression, which has triggered one of the world's worst refugee crises. You know, you keep talking about other places in the world that have refugee crises, but Venezuela has basically given Latin America about four to five million refugees. And then there's also Cuba's eternal dictatorship. But Somewhere along the way, there's some non-obvious ones like Brazil, Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador. They continue to plunder their natural resources amidst you know, widespread accusations of deep corruption, rising crime rates, and a growing power of various mafias trafficking in drugs, contraband, and people. And in COVID's path of destruction, the result is a dismal social outlook where the first victims of greed and poor management are, of course, the most vulnerable. And so presidents wrap themselves up in these fake rebound effects of GDP, which, you know, for a couple of months seem to just pop up. But the truth is a lot more complicated because poverty levels are rising, access to education, food and healthcare, the destruction of national resources, that's all just rising everywhere, coupled with growing inflation and the rising cost of basic goods for so many poor people. 
and Latin America's youth, which has been now aided by increasing connectivity and access to social media, have taken note of this. And the youth are just bursting with what is now called this progressive tide of students and activists expressing their discontent. And Taya is going to tackle this today in Taya's Take. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at social justice and youth issues. And I'm very happy to be here for Altamar's season five. So yes, the growing strength of progressive-leaning youth is visible not only in Chile, where Gabriel Boric will begin his presidential term in February, but elsewhere as well, as young leaders are popping up across Latin America. Some names to look out for are Andronico Rodriguez in Bolivia or Guillermo Bulos in Brazil. One represented the Bolivian coca growers and the other, the homeless, or as Peter told me they say in Portuguese, the roofless. Both are under 40. Both are left-wing, and they're emblematic of young leaders making their names through NGOs, unions, and student groups, and are now paving the way for left-wing politics across the continent. But can they be successful against entrenched politicians? I mean, Latin Americans have so far opted for either political dynasties, such as Christina Kirchner in Argentina, populists on the left and the right, such as Bolsonaro in Brazil or Castillo in Peru, or technocrats such as Colombia's Duque. But after watching this election unfold in Chile, the continent's most middle-class country, you have to ask yourself if Latin Americans will now start picking leaders because they are young, untainted by the past, and they actually don't come from politics at all. And if that happens, it wouldn't be a surprise. I mean, in Latin America, 20% of the population is between 15 and 24. And it's the largest proportion of young people ever in the region's history. And it's among the youngest in the world. So these young people are just starting to take seats of power in some of these countries. And while they're blocked by older white men, as we all are across the world, but also by political dynasties, it's really only a matter of time until they start claiming power. And like usual in Latin America, the speed at which it happens might just take us by surprise. But what do you think? Will we see youths rise in politics soon in Latin America? Tweet at Altimer Podcast and let me know. This is a really interesting view of a continent of millennials. And I do agree that Chile's recent election results serve as both an example and a cautionary tale. Chile, I mean, from growing up and studying Latin American studies, Chile was always kind of the success story. After the fall of dictator Augusto Pinochet in 1990, it became a symbol of middle-class progress, sensible economic policy, governments that were moderate and a penchant toward global trade, which was very diversified both in sectors and in partner countries. Chile was, at least to us, the picture of stability. And this has changed so radically in recent years. It's been spurred by massive student protests and unrest. And from this discontent, right in the middle of the protests, rises Gabriel Boric, a 35-year-old former student protester and congressman, now Chile's bright new president. He's an unconventional figure. He defeated a right-wing Pinochet sympathizer. He generates equal measures of skepticism and hope. And his team of young specialists, a lot of them in international affairs, has started to emphasize a government that is definitely committed to addressing inequality, regional integration, migration, climate change, and of course, COVID as priorities. We'll see. 
I mean, he's such an interesting character, you know, with his love of rock star t-shirts. He's shaken the political establishment with his promise of turning Chile into, quote, the tomb of neoliberalism, unquote. He appeals to the left, but his recent tone has been more moderate. Expectations are high, not only for his country, but as a template of what could be a new type of leader in a rocky part of the world, whether he's going to be able to satisfy the needs of young Chileans or not, or whether he's going to satisfy those needs by scaring away foreign investors, all that remains to be seen. So Muni, to talk a little bit about Chile and democracy and integration and equality and social safety nets in Latin America, Juan Gabriel Valdez is with us today. Juan Gabriel Valdez and I met decades ago in the fight to unseat Pinochet as the dictator of Chile. And since then, he's been Chile's Minister of Foreign Affairs. He served as its ambassador to the United States, ambassador to the UN, ambassador to Argentina and Spain, as well as being the UN envoy to Haiti. He holds degrees and fellowships from the University of Essex in England, Princeton and Notre Dame. He's taught at La Sorbonne in Paris and in Columbia University. He's a true expert on Chile, but of course, on much more than Chile, on the rest of Latin America and the world. Juan Gabriel, welcome. We're so delighted to have you on Altamar. Thank you very much, Peter. It's so good to be with you and with Muni and Thea. I'm so happy to be in Altamar. I was in Washington when you began with this experience, I believe, and uh, I was leaving Washington, and uh, this is the first time I see you again. Then, un gran abrazo. Y lo mismo. I, I feel the same. Juan Gabriel, I'm going to begin with a very general question, and then we can talk a little bit about Chile. And, and Muni and I and Tera have been discussing sort of the sense of crumbling safety nets in Latin America. That's happened even before COVID, but obviously accelerated by COVID. And it's evident that, you know, any glimpse of progress in a growing middle class that we've seen in the previous decade is now really fraying today. And so what's your view on this increasing inequality and the reduced access to education and basic services. Is there a common fault line? Is there a common story to tell in Latin America? I think so. I believe that, uh, as you say, the economic crisis that we're going through now began much before COVID. In fact, the enormous growth that Latin America had in the 90s and the beginning of the, this century was the result of uh, Chinese expansion and was a result of the good prices of primary goods. But no reforms were really made. There was a fragile middle class that came up as a result of these successes. In April of 2018, the Economic Commission on Latin America published a report which indicated that inequality was decreasing in Latin America. That was a good news. In, in fact, inequality was decreasing as a result of favorable macroeconomic indicators, the increased price of natural goods, and some institutional factors as public policies oriented to monetary transfers to poor households or third age population. But the fact is that these sort of reforms and these sort of successes were not possible to, to sustain. In the same report of the Economic Commission of Latin America indicated that in 2014 inequality was again growing and that there was a deacceleration of economic growth. And this was simply the result of the fall in the prices of primary goods and the incapacities of governments to lead towards uh, reforms that could sustain growth and could sustain redistributive policies. 
The fact is that there was a falling in internal demand, there was a falling in external demand, then the pandemic began, and the pandemic was a catastrophe. The pandemic was a complete catastrophe, 7.7% fall of the national product of the GDP. There were 2.7 million small businesses that failed in the region in the first year. There was an enormous increase in unemployment and therefore what new governments are facing in Latin America is a very dire situation, an extremely difficult situation. Uh, of course, all of us have been hit by the pandemic, some more than the others. Some countries have been able to react better. I think that the Chilean reaction has not been among the worst. It has been among the best reactions. But it is clear that the phenomenon has been very much expanded in Latin America, both the success before the pandemic and then the catastrophe that began immediately before the, the fall of the pandemic. You talked about sort of how governments today and of the future are going to have to find a way to deal with this. So let's talk about one of the most interesting governments of the very near future, which is in Chile. Chile has long been considered the gem of Latin America with its thriving economy, its middle class, busy global trade. But in the past years, the bubble just seems to have burst and student protests, violence, discontent has been the norm. What happened in Chile? Well, Chile is a very, you're also right in this question. I believe that Chile followed the same script than the rest of the region. Chile was an enormous success at the beginning of the century, and uh, it had a remarkable growth during a long decade. But without structural reforms and with an enormous income inequality, Chile is the 16th most unequal country in the world, according to the World Bank. And according to the UNDP, it is the first in all the countries among which the UNDP develops the human development reports or makes the human development report. 1% takes one-third of income, 5% takes half of the income of the country. But apart from these income inequalities, Chileans were, for some reason, developing an enormous resentment towards differences and inequalities in other dimensions of human life. As you know, there are multiple polls that show that Chile is the country where individuals mistrust each other more than in any other country in the region, for instance. And they complain more than others about what we call desigualdad de trato, this way in which people treat those who are felt to be of a lower class, or to be weaker, or to be women, or to be from the regions. Then this phenomenon had an enormous explosion on the 18th of November of 2019. This explosion was a result, in my opinion, or in my perspective, of the enormous amount of expectations that Chile had developed on the basis of the growth of the country during the previous decade. The idea that public education would be expanded, that health would be at the disposal of everybody. When growth stopped, this was a complete sense of abandonment from the government. The first reaction or the first explanation for this rebellion was the phenomenon of inequality and the feeling that of frustration that most people felt at that time. But the other thing was, I think, the distance between the elite and the general population. There was a supposition that there was a lack of understanding or a terrible indifference of the elites toward the real situation of most of the population. 
the majority believed that inequality was a result of deliberate action by the elites. And this phenomenon had an enormous impact in the political system and in the way in which authorities were seen. There was also in the institutions, uh, the idea that the institutions lacked a sense of urgency on the needs of the population. This produced, along with the famous relationship between money and politics, and politics produced a complete decay of the faith in the political parties, in the institutions, and when corruption showed up in the carabineros, in the police and in the army, the phenomenon of mistrust and uh, frustration came as a generalized phenomenon in society. I think that these are the reasons of the explosion of October of 2019, but they explain a lot about what's going on right now and the election of Gabriel Boric to the presidency. So you disagreed with me about something that I wrote, and you wrote me that I called Boric a far-left leader, quote-unquote, and I know you've supported his candidacy and you seem to be optimistic about the outlook of Chile. So Let's take advantage of this disagreement and tell us a little bit more about this young president and what he means for Chile and what he may mean for also neighboring countries in Latin America. Okay, I will sustain our, our difference, Peter. In fact, I think that it is not accurate to call him a far-left leader. My first observation is about violence. I think that the question of violence has to be uh, observed because, in fact, the problem of this rebellion of 2019 was precisely the use of violence in Santiago and in most cities of the country and the reaction of the political class towards violence. On one side, President Piñera said that the country was at war, which was obviously a very bad uh, reaction. And at the same time, some people in the left began to believe that we were at the doors of the Russian Revolution. And of course, this was also absurd. Then at that moment is when the leadership of Gabriel Boric showed up because in a moment in which important parts of the left were supporting mobilization, meaning by mobilization, what was going on in the center of Santiago and in the center of other cities, he said, no, we are going to follow an institutional road towards peace. And this institutional road means a plebiscite and a new constitution. And uh, he was alone on that, and he supported the center-left parties and the right-wing parties in the call, and there was this institutional agreement in November that helped to dilute and to dissolve the level of violence that the society was going through. Now, Boric was a student 10 years ago. He was 25 years old. And of course, he was a student leader. He was a very distinguished student leader. He immediately shows as a very charismatic person. You cannot judge him, of course, today for what he said then. And he said then what most 25-year students' leaders say normally about the world and about the United States and about etc., etc. Then I think that uh, his career has been absolutely extraordinary. There is uh, something vertiginous in his rise to power. And this has to do with his personality. We were commenting before that he comes from the extreme, extreme south of the world, which is the city of Punta Arenas. He is uh, of a very Christian democratic family, linked to the Catholic Church too. But he developed since very young a very leftist approach to politics. He has a strong, very strong personality, probably his origins in the Balkans or in Catalonia. And therefore he distinguished himself since he was very young. And then let me give you an example of his attitudes. 
he talks to President Lagos and he says to to President Lagos, Ricardo. Uh, Ricardo Lagos is now 83 years old and he is considered the eldest statesman, the biggest statesman in the country. Uh, he addresses people who opposed him directly and he says he wants to listen to them. He has programmed next week meetings with the right-wing parties, for instance. The right-wing parties were extremely surprised when the elected president called them and said, well, we want, I want a meeting with all of you. Then he's inaugurating a sort of new style in politics. And the problem he has is the weakness of his coalition, the weakness he has in parliament, because he has only half of the parliament or less than half. Therefore, he needs to negotiate. And most of the reforms he has proposed will face not only the very dire economic situation I have already described, but he will face an enormous opposition coming from the most conservative sectors and also from some Christian Democrats. Therefore, he has an enormous task in front of him. And I think that he faces the problem that all reformist leaders face. You cannot make changes in a society if you don't have some leadership. And at the same time, you cannot have leadership if you are not able to create some consent. And therefore, the fight between introducing new topics and creating consent will be a very difficult thing for him to carry out. But I trust him because I believe he is extraordinary and he has a, a very, very attractive personality and a new way of producing politics. He has in front of him, nothing less than to generate a new social pact in Chile. And this is something very important because, as in most other places, including the United States, democracy is also threatened in Chile, from the left and from the right. And therefore, we need to prove that democratic dialogue and conversation and negotiation can produce good results. So I want to talk about that new style of politics. I mean, we can talk about Balkan personalities in a, in a separate podcast, no? But I wanted to ask you that, you know, in some Latin American countries, we're, we're seeing this rise of young politicians. And of course, Chile is a clear example, but we're seeing it also in Bolivia and Brazil. I wanted to ask you, is it too soon to speak of a trend or are you sort of hopeful of young politicians taking the helm? I'm not sure if we can talk about the trend in terms of the next elections. Lula is the most powerful candidate in Brazil and he's not young precisely then. But what we can say, and I'm sure of that, is that there is a new generation of leaders that respond to different logics than were the traditional logic of our countries. Uh, they don't want to confront the type of politics that was organized before. They would like to have different sort of political parties. They value social movements in a way which were not valued before. Chile was a country, and Peter knows that well, in which social movement practically didn't exist in the period previous to Pinochet. It was a country of parties. Our political parties resembled enormously the European political parties. But we didn't have the social movements that Argentina had, for instance. Well, today, social movements are extraordinarily powerful. New topics like climate change, social and gender rights, a more direct, horizontal style of political exchanges. I think that what these people, these young people value the most is clarity, is transparency is non-corruption, is a, a way of creating a new style of politics. I'm not extraordinarily optimistic about that because politics is politics. But the point is that they will make an effort to change the political reality of Chile. That's evident. 
and in Latin America, I think that this will come out sometime in the near future. And we've seen so many examples of political upheaval in Latin America in this very busy electoral cycle. We had, aside from the Chilean elections, we had Honduras, Peru, Ecuador last year. We have upcoming Colombia. There's a, a big question mark there. Brazil, Costa Rica. What are some of the lessons learned in terms of what the regional politics is looking like? And what can we expect in the coming months in the very short term? I think that the most important uh, conclusion we have uh, but by now is that people are voting against their governments. People want change from their the present governments. The present governments are enormously discredited. They are trying to change them. Now, this has had different outcomes. The Peruvian situation is enormously difficult. The government has to prove itself and the reaction from society is critical. We are extremely hopeful that he will succeed, but the point is that no previous, during the previous times, the Peruvian governments have been extremely fragile and they, most of them have fallen and some presidents are in jail. This situation becomes critical because what you realize is that the political system is not working and therefore the need to change the political system and to change the part type of participation you have in the political system is becoming crucial. This is why in Chile the new constitution will become the most important element in the future, even more than the government of Gabriel Boric. Well, this is, again, a kind of depressing outlook across the region. But on a positive note, the continent that has been for decades unable to get its act together on anything resembling regional integration, there's been so many attempts, some of them political, some of them trade-related, and, and none of them have really thrived, has suddenly, more quietly, started to address common problems such as migration between governments in the region, climate change, security issues like money laundering and drug trafficking, and of course, COVID mitigation. It has stimulated some dialogue among countries. Are you hopeful that this could turn into increasing consensus and perhaps some attempts at integration? I feel that what is most clear of what I have read about Latin America recently is an interview that President Lagos, precisely of Chile, gave to El Mundo in Madrid, where the title was Latin America does not exist. And he said that he had to say that because, in fact, the type, the, the level of dialogue among presidents is extremely reduced. The tendency towards agreements that are based on common ideologies for governments that last for four years or even less sometimes. This type of practices have led the region to be a complete failure in terms of international activity and as an international actor. But you're right, Muni, I think that the pandemic, the phenomenon of migration, the phenomenon of, of uh, climate change will force these governments to talk. And some talks have begun already. I think that one of the good things that Chile could do in the next government is to promote conversations and dialogues that go beyond the ideology of particular governments. This needs a dialogue which I hope will create probably a, a basis for a new push in regional integration. Many countries are very uh, criticized for their governments from the right and the center. That's the case in particular in Colombia and, and have been criticized for failing to provide for the poor and vulnerable under these right-leaning governments. And Colombia, of course, is not alone. But then we see the left and it has also created chaos, especially the extreme left, the true extreme left in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba has not been successful. And then there's some models of, of these outsiders like Bukele and Salvador and, and 
and others who have very little political experience has also failed. So what do you think is the formula to do away with these failed governments and or, or failing governments or imperfect ones and address the main concerns of the population, which is what is, I think, the priority right now? The billion dollar question, Muni. I think that the billion-dollar question has only one answer, which is the creation of consensus and social pacts. If you don't have governments that are able to generate certain level of consensus in society and a certain perception that you can organize a community that can live together and has has the will to live together, then you will have one failure after the other. And my perception is that this new governments, and I'm saying this after having said that I support fully the government of Gabriel Boric in Chile. This gives you an indication that I have a perception of how he should develop his own government. My point is that La Concertación, the coalition that managed Chile for 30 years or more or less politically, managed to create a different modernized country on the basis of dialogue and agreements, broad agreements. Michel Bachelet managed to join in the same government the Christian Democrats and the Communists at a certain point. I'm not saying that this will solve all problems, but you cannot attempt to solve any problem if you are representing just 20% of society. And this has been the mistake coming both from the right and from the left. Sebastián Piñera got a very minimal majority when he was elected and he believed that he was representing a cultural change in the country, which was absurd. It, it demonstrated that the course of the, the development of the country was the same during Bachelet and during Piñera. Piñera made a bad reading and he, he is leaving now power in a situation of complete isolation. Therefore, social pact, the idea of building a pact between the business sector, the working sector, the working class, the poorer sectors of society have to be uh, protected by a type of state which is at the same time more practical and less ideological, but at the same time gives protection to those sectors and has to manage to reform the political system in order to allow uh, participation and therefore the impression that you are in a legitimate government that creates agreements. This is my, my perception of what is going on and what should happen. Juan Gabriel, we could stay here all day, but we have about a minute left. And I have to ask you a question about your book, Los Economistas de Pinochet, which discusses the role of the neoliberal model that, that Chile lived for a long time. Do you think it is time to bury neoliberalism? I think that neoliberalism is burying itself. Uh, the pandemic couldn't tolerate neoliberalism. And my impression is that uh, there will be enormous difficulties if people who are in government try to apply market solutions to all problems in society. What neoliberalism did in Chile was to promote an, a level of individualism that created a lack of will to live in society. If you don't have a society and you have four societies, you cannot have a democracy because democracy needs social will, needs cohesion, needs acceptance by all of the same rules. Then these individualists that promoted tribal mentalities, for instance, did not cooperate with the creation of a common society and affected seriously the credibility of the political system. Therefore, I believe that neoliberalism, at least in our countries, is very much uh, out of the question. My book is a very old book I wrote a long time ago, but it was published in England and then it was reprinted in Chile in sixth edition. I'm very happy of its success. 
but it relates how neoliberalism and the Chicago School came to Chile. It's a book on history of ideas in Chile, and I, I think that it is a it is a book that came at a good moment in our own discussion in the country. Juan Gabriel Valdez, we ran out of time. As Muni said, we could be here all day. Thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you very much to you and to Muni and to Thea and to Altamar. A great pleasure, Peter. Thank you very much for the invitation. Peter, Thea, there's so much to reflect on. I think it's one of the few people that can actually look at the region and draw some conclusions when there's so many differences and so many nuances that almost make it impossible to define. What struck me in this conversation with Juan Gabriel more than the region was that he could have been talking about the United States. The whole notion of a social pact that's more practical, that's less ideological, that brings a coalition together to solve practical problems, that gets rid of tribalism. I mean, this could have been a doctor's prescription for exactly what's happening in the United States, which just goes to show how broad this problem is all over the world. I would agree with that, but I think the one small difference in between the two governments of uh, Chile and the U.S. is the age of the president. I think we're at two very far ends of the spectrum on that. But I also, what I found interesting was, you know, his semi-optimism on young leaders sort of popping up. You know, he said in Brazil, we probably won't see a young leader go through, but they're popping up. And I think they're they're representing a, a real danger to the existing dynasties. And so with that, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. <laughs>